Oh my goodness, y'all. That song preached the message for me already. Like That's just all the way that the Spirit ties these things together is just incredible. And so thank you to our worship team. Y'all, let's give them a hand. <clears throat> Amazing. Moving me to tears already, but <laughs> still got to preach. So um, y'all... Despite what the weather is telling us, it is fall, right? Um, I had almost put my summer shorts away and gotten my winter ones out. <laughs> and we carved pumpkins. Riley and Avery and I carved pumpkins uh, Friday nights by a fire, which we didn't need because it was too hot already. But I needed the smell of, of the, the campfire. Um, and so that means we're in fall and and. That brings for um, my family um, hunting season. And so when I go home to West Virginia, occasionally I get the chance to go hunting with my brothers, taking uh, Riley and Avery out in the woods uh, from time to time. And so this week I was um, filling out the information for my hunting license. And the thing is, which is, um, this is amazing, that you have to have a hunter safety course on record in order to get your hunting license. Amen. Thank you for that safety protection. There's a hunter safety course in place before you go in the woods to hunt things. Um, yes, this is good news. However, I seem to have misplaced my hunter safety card from uh, the class that I took in junior high school, in school, in eighth grade. Um, and so you can't move forward until you have the record of your hunter safety course. So I call up um, the records division in my home state of West Virginia, and it warmed my heart more than you can even know that I hear the woman go to a filing cabinet, hear the click, and then the leafing through. Last name, last four of your social, date of birth, there it is. The paper in a file cabinet somewhere in in uh, South Charleston, West Virginia, uh, they found the record of March 13th, 1995, <laughs> when I took this hunter safety course and passed uh, with flying colors. All of that to say, there is something special about being able to dig into the archive to pull forward for us the story of what was, what is, and to look to the future of what could be. I'm seeing the deer now that I may find in the woods. No. <laughs> really, today we are going to pull into the archive from the prophet Isaiah. But with that... There, there is the historical account of so much of what we see in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. We have a historical account in the book of Chronicles and in the books of Kings. So first and second Chronicles, first and second Kings, the historic record of the people of God. And so there we're going to turn today to dig in and see a little bit more of what Isaiah was speaking to in his day and time. So we find again, ancient Israel, the people of God, thinking that they can do no wrong. Thinking that they're too big or too strong to fail because God is on their side. 
But as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, the people of Israel, ancient Israel in their time, have stepped out of their calling to be God's people, his covenant people to demonstrate his love for all of the world. We see this particularly in how they are treating the poor and the marginalized in their midst, how everything has turned inward into their own gain, what they can get for themselves. And so we find ourselves, Isaiah speaking to two kings. We're going to take a look at that that timeline that we are working through right now. I have my trusty um, laser pointer again. So right here. We are, first we're going to look at Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz, and then we're going to look at Isaiah speaking to King Hezekiah. So today we are looking at Ahaz, Hezekiah, and you, or us, what Isaiah is saying to us. So first we're going to look at King Ahaz. King Ahaz is referred to by one of my Old Testament professors, Sandy Richter, as the faithless king. And we are about to see why. But you can get the story of Ahaz right here in the, the mashup of these chapters from Second Chronicles and Second Kings. They are linked for you in the teaching section of um, the website today. So on the Sunday page, you can actually just hit one link and they're all there for you. So it's, it's already piled up. If you want to read in detail all of it, I assure you as you read it, you will find why the Old Testament is not boring. Um, the drama, the um, action, the uh, relationships, all of it is the making of a new Netflix series. So um, if you are feeling uh, led into directing some um, new hit for Netflix, this is your opportunity. Read up. The script is there for you. Uh, we'll see that for both Ahaz and for Hezekiah. So Ahaz, we're going to look first at the, the first couple of lines from Second um, Chronicles 28. I think we have that. So unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel or the northern kingdom in this case. So Israel, remember on our map, is, is labeled the northern kingdom. And also made idols for worshiping the Baals or Baals, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, so unlike David, his father, y'all, David is not his direct father. David, we'll see over and over again, and if you read through the records in Chronicles and in Kings, David is being referred to as the king, right? The ultimate king in ancient Israel's history. And so if you're a good king, you're going to be found in David's line. So being referred to as the son of David. But this is unlike David. So what does that mean? Not so good. He does not go down in history as a king um, that is regarded in David's line. So we find, um, let's go to the map, Wes. So we find right here, the northern kingdom, right, is at a place of 
ready to do battle with the southern kingdom. We talked about how these kingdoms had split. And so Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom, or also referred to as Judah, as you're reading. So the southern kingdom is about to be under attack. These are consequences of Ahaz's actions, consequences of the ways that the people of ancient Israel have been living, that the surrounding kingdoms are going to come against them. And so the northern kingdom right here is actually starting to form alliances with Aram and Damascus. They're looking for allies to actually come and overpower the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is the line through which Judah, through the line of Judah, through which Jesus will come ultimately. That ancient Israel's, the people of God and the presence of God is still in Jerusalem at this point housed in the temple that was built by Solomon. So the southern kingdom, where the presence of God, the people of God, the supposed to be people of God are dwelling. But the surrounding nations are coming against them. They're under attack. The allies from pagan kingdoms, the northern kingdom has given themselves over to where it referred to just a minute ago of, of how Ahaz is actually taking on the, the worship of idols of Baal. The surrounding nations are starting to infiltrate what was the people of God and ancient Israel. So we see them worshiping God's other than, the Holy One the creator of the universe. And so in the midst of all of this, Isaiah brings a prophecy to King Ahaz, even though he is a faithless king and he has turned to, as Isaiah 7 uh, tells us, he's turned to the idols of the surrounding nations, that he is, is actually making sacrifice Sorry, this is in Second Chronicles. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, sacrificed even children in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before he gave them the promised land. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at high places on hilltops and under every spreading tree, as in to say, it's rampant. It's happening everywhere, even in the kingdom of Judah. And so the prophecy that Isaiah brings, he says, don't be afraid. What they are threatening will not come to pass. So Isaiah gives this word of confidence, the word of confidence to Ahaz, even as the faithless king that God will see you through. What is, what is being threatened by the surrounding nations, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Those nations, the head of Syria, and Damascus, King Rezin, within the next 65 years, Isaiah tells him, that they will actually overtake the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom itself will not stand. 
And so it was final word from the Lord to King Ahaz. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In turn, Ahaz is actually not firm in his faith. In fact, the facing, face, uh, facing military advances against him. He not only continues what he's doing, but he begins adding sacrifices to the gods or the idols of his enemies. That he's seeing the enemies advance and succeed. And so he thinks, if I sacrifice to those idols, to those gods, maybe they will protect me. Even to the point that he will eventually pursue the ally of Assyria. Assyria that will ultimately overtake the northern kingdom. And so Ahaz comes to the end of his life. He's buried in Jerusalem, but scripture specifically tells us Ahaz is not buried with the kings because he was the faithless king. He turned to all of the other gods, all of the other strengths that he thought he could use for his advantage. He turned to allies that were not allies of God's kingdom. And so he is, he is remembered, not among the great kings of ancient Israel. Let's flip a couple pages. Actually, it's just one page. Sorry. <laughs> just one page. We get to Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who takes the throne when Ahaz goes to sleep with his fathers, which is another way of saying he died. So Hezekiah, the almost faithful king. We'll get to the almost in a minute. We're going to see his faithfulness play out. But this, just literally, just turn another page in Chronicles, turn another page in 2 Kings, and you get the story of Hezekiah unfolding. Hezekiah comes to the throne after Ahaz, and in that, we find that in Hezekiah's time, Assyria overtakes the northern kingdom. So those allies that had signed up with the northern kingdom to come against the southern kingdom have all been assimilated into Assyria. That they are taken over, that the king of Assyria is ruling over all of those nations, including what was the northern kingdom of Israel. And so in that, the name of that king is Sennacherib. Say that with me, Sennacherib. Sennacherib, it's just a fun word to say. So, so, <laughs> he's going to have some snapped ribs. Yes, that's coming. <laughs> Sennacherib. So Sennacherib then finally is like, right, we have all of these nations. And the southern kingdom is there the kingdom of ancient Israel that stands 
And all of the surrounding land is taken by Assyria. And so they're like, I mean, we might as well go take the rest of it. Why not? I hear they've got some wealth mounted up in Jerusalem. And so Assyria comes against Hezekiah, comes knocking with troops after troops after troops, probably numbering close to the actual population of Jerusalem. And so they get to the gate. They've actually overtaken all of the outposts, even in the southern kingdom. The smaller, uh, smaller communities around Jerusalem, they, they get swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire. And so as they are knocking on the gate of Jerusalem, Hezekiah gets word of their presence and their threat. Not just their threat to overtake them, but their threat includes a mockery of the God of all creation. Their God, the Holy One of Israel. And so in that mockery, in all of those threats, instead of the response that Ahaz took to look to all of the other possible allies, to look to the idols and the gods of other nations, Hezekiah, it says, received a letter from the messengers, those who had come to the gate. He read it, and then he went to the temple of the Lord. He spread it out before the Lord, as if to prostrate himself before the altar laying out this letter of all of the threats. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule you, the living God. It's true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands around them. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. And so, in response to this prayer, the prophet Isaiah brings a word from the Lord to Hezekiah. I think we have that for you. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Does that sound familiar? The same thing that God said to Ahaz. He says to Hezekiah, Hezekiah has faith that God will see them through. In fact, he tells them that Sennacherib, who has come, who has sent this army and leading the army himself, Sennacherib, is called back. Just as the Lord told Isaiah and told Hezekiah he would be, Sennacherib is called back to his palace to defend on another front. 
that though this southern kingdom of Israel is still hanging out here and probably not that hard to overtake for this massive army, Sennacherib is called back to fight on another front. And not only did Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah speak to Hezekiah that Sennacherib would turn and go, not only that, but he told them Sennacherib would die back home that he would not be able to come back against the people of Israel. And sure enough, as Sennacherib is back home, he's actually killed by one of his sons. And so Assyria does not again come against the southern kingdom. They're saved. They're protected. Hezekiah in his faith leading the people are saved from harm in this moment. And then Hezekiah gets sick. Hezekiah gets really sick. Really sick to the point that Isaiah shares with him that his fate and, um, is, is soon to be death. And even in response to the word that Hezekiah in his illness is about to face death, Hezekiah again fervently prays. He prays for more time. He prays for his people. And God grants another 15 years to Hezekiah. However, in that time, there is an envoy that comes from Babylon. Babylon comes into Jerusalem, and Hezekiah has in his mind, maybe, just maybe, Babylon will be our defender. They will be our ally. And so in doing, in feeling that, he takes them throughout Jerusalem, shows them all around, shows them everything, everywhere, through the temple, through the palace, shows them everything they've got. And Babylon goes back home thinking, oh, that was nice. Babylon will be back. Babylon then overtakes all of Assyria. Everything that Assyria had conquered, Babylon takes it too. And then they come against the southern kingdom. And we get what we know of as the Babylonian exile. Pull that timeline back up, Wes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> gotcha. So we find ourselves here with King Hezekiah in 715. And so the Babylonian exile doesn't actually come down here until 587, 586. So it will be a little while before that comes to pass. And there are a couple more kings in the process. Manasseh, well, he makes Ahaz look a little closer to a saint. And Manasseh, is, though it is not recorded for us in scripture in other ancient um, Jewish writings, Manasseh is attributed to murdering Isaiah because Isaiah continues to speak <clears throat> to speak the words of God, to protect God's people 
And Manasseh again turns away. And all the work that Hezekiah does to restore after his father Ahaz brings in all the idols, Hezekiah had purified the temple, cleared everything out, turned their hearts back toward the Lord. And then Manasseh does it all again. Josiah becomes another faithful king, trying to turn the people of God back. And then... Babylon comes against the next generation. And so it says the first deportation over here, Babylon does like a slow burn against the southern kingdom. It starts to take people away. It starts to take their treasure away. And then ultimately overtakes Jerusalem. And it's at that point that the presence of God is seen actually leaving the temple as Babylon overtakes So Babylon will ultimately take over everything. But here in this moment, what Isaiah is speaking to, to both of these kings, these kings are facing forces that could absolutely destroy them. Both of them are at the end of their resources. Both of them entrusted with the kingdom of God. Both of them entrusted with the people of God both of them extremely desperate for rescue. We see the different response. Isaiah, in the face of total destruction, Hezekiah, in the face of the the mounting military presence of all of Assyria. And their difference in response Ahaz turning to others, and though in spite of him, God still rescues. And then Hezekiah being the faithful king. The almost comes because later, right, that he shows shows the Babylonians around and they decide they're coming back later. But in that, what is Isaiah, what is Isaiah's audience supposed to hear from this comparison of the two kings? What is Isaiah saying to us, to us? In both cases, it's a word to trust. Trust God will do what God says God will do. So Ahaz, Hezekiah, what about you? Do you see yourself as one who is entrusted with the kingdom? Why or why not? Could you be found in the line of the kings of Israel with Ahaz, Hezekiah? For those who follow the king of kings, Jesus, There is adoption into this household, into this kingdom that is coming. So yes, you, you are entrusted with the kingdom of God and it unfolding in our midst. And the words that came to Ahaz and the words that came to Hezekiah, those words that were the same, 
Do not be afraid. Those words are for you. Fear not. The same call to you in this cultural moment to trust in God, to trust that he will redeem, that he is at work. Jesus says to his disciples, as he prepares to send them out, to do what he has been doing, to heal the sick, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to cast out demons. Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And so what's the impossible thing that you are facing today? What is that wall that feels insurmountable? That's so impossible that you don't even know how it could be overcome. Maybe it's a diagnosis, your own health concerns. Maybe it's the crushing weight of a broken relationship. Maybe it's a transition in employment or a coming transition in employment. Maybe it's the changing of the seasons and knowing that winter is on its way. Maybe it's a mounting wall of financial debt. An aging parent or a sick family member. Maybe it's that addiction, that unhealthy way that you cope when things are hard. Maybe it's the overwhelming, systemic issues of our culture, race, the economy, gender discrimination, whatever it is, whatever it is that you are facing in this moment, God says, you can trust me. When these major life impact moments that we face come up or that we've been facing them for some time, we find ourselves in desperate situations even desperate for rescue. We have the option to lean in to what God has for us or to lean out and look to what the world has to offer to distract us, to numb the pain, to lead us in another direction to ignore or avoid those problems. Or we can turn to God, to face them. God is already present in what you are facing. And so to lean into him, to turn to God, seeking him in prayer, seeking him through the word that he is speaking to us through scripture, All of that comes from a cultivated life of practicing the ways of Jesus. Prayer, hearing from God's word, surrounding ourselves in community of people who are also following the ways of Jesus. 
that when we find ourselves in a desperate place, it often activates or open doors for healing and restoration to take place, but we have to lean in and trust in God's goodness to lead us through. Or maybe we find ourselves like Hezekiah, showing Babylon all around everything that we've got. That there's something or someone that you have let into your life that you know it was the wrong move. And you are desperate for a redo. As long as we have breath, friends, there is hope. There's hope and opportunity for us to turn to God with every one of our needs. God will meet you in those broken places. Not only will he meet you there, he will work through you to speak life and hope to others around you. It's the love local place. It's the here and now. If you are following Jesus, then you already have everything you need to take the next step of faith right here and right now. Everything you need for this moment. You might not yet have everything you need for tomorrow or the day after that or next week, but in trusting, it will come. So the Apostle Paul gives us these words, gives language to what we're experiencing right now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says we have this treasure that we're talking about right now, this treasure, everything that we need, our trust in God. It's in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us that it is God on display. For we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed. that we are serving, we are following the God of the impossible, the God who makes the impossible possible. And because it is not in our strength, from the place of tiredness, the place of weariness, of facing whatever that is that is in front of you right now, but it is God's strength alone. We find ourselves often in a place where we are wanting all of this fruit of the kingdom, but without the king. In this cultural moment, aren't we striving for all of the goodness of the kingdom, but we'll leave the king over there. This is where it comes to practicing the ways of Jesus. Because it is through Jesus that we are actually following the king right into the kingdom. 
And the kingdom comes not by our strength, but by trusting in the one who brought it. The one who would give up his own life for us, for salvation, to set us free. And so that's where we come to the table, friends, that we're reminded what he has done. And because of this, we can trust that he's already got it. What he says is true that he will see us through. Amen. So we remember that Jesus, on his last night with the disciples, sitting around a table, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. For your salvation, for your freedom here and now, friends, this is for you. That God is saying you can trust me with whatever it is that you are facing today. You already have what you need taste and see, remember that I've got you. I've already won. So walk with me. Follow me. Rest in my presence. Friends, I want to invite you into the presence of the Lord as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, his body and blood for you, for your redemption, for your rescue. So we'll come down the side aisle here. Our servers are ready. Going to tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Then you can come across the front and and back to your seat. I'm going to be over here if there's a way that I can be praying for you. In whatever you're facing, even if you don't want to share it, you just want prayer. You can stop and I I will be glad to pray with you. So friends, come to the table.